0: Welcome to the Homegrown Podcast, the place where we share the truth about food and farming from our kitchen to yours. I'm your host, Liz Hazelmeyer, along with my husband, Joey. Good morning. And together, we hope to inspire, educate, and equip you in your pursuit of true nourishment. Today's episode, we're going to be walking through a piece of Joey's real food journey. He has shared um, bits and pieces along the various episodes so far, but just really bring a full circle, encompass a little bit of his real food perspective today and how that has changed even from six, seven years ago. So I'm excited to, Joey, give some context into your upbringing and young adulthood because that obviously shapes the way our family is today and talk about the ways that you're growing as a, you know, real food enthusiast, even though you might not have ever considered that you would be that someday so I'm pumped
1: right on I know that it's been a I feel like I've trained the, the the transformation for me feels like it happened really quickly but in reality there is a much larger story there and there's so much kind of background information to like what my current lens of food like how that's shaped Mm -hmm. today has has been has been has been a long story so yeah i'm pumped i'm excited
0: yeah i think when when you lay it out it all makes sense it makes sense as to why you are who you are and how you are who you are so joey hazelmeyer tell um tell us where you grew up and give us a lens into food in your household as a young boy Mm.
1: well Early, early years, I, I was born in a town or city or whatever. It's called Canadegua, New York. So if you know where that is, good for you, um, upstate New York. So I used to tell people I was born in New York and they'd always be like, oh, the city. I think like, actually like the opposite of that, you know, yeah. we had, you know, broken down tractors and cars that we didn't know what we were doing with in the lawn, right? Like country New York. And then from there, after kind of growing up in New York, we moved around quite a bit. My dad was a youth pastor and my mom was a nurse. And so essentially, you know, we kind of went where the work was. And I know that my dad got a, um, a position at a church in Noblesville, Indiana. So we kind of planted some roots there. We lived there for a little while. Gosh, I must have been there until I was about four years old. I can remember that house. I can remember being there for a little while, learning how to ride a bike, those sorts of things. Don't really, I don't really remember eating food back then though, if I think back that far. Um, but uh, that, that job kind of quickly transitioned into us moving into my grandparents' basement. I think we moved, I think if, if you ask one of my brothers or someone that has a better memory than I do. The tally would be six or seven moves we did before we landed in Cincinnati, Ohio, and that was in my grandparents' basement. So we stayed with them. Actually, I think we moved in with my grandparents twice. Mm-hmm. One time at their their old house on Good News Lane, and then and then that was in Cincy, and then finally on Springdale we, in that in the house that you've seen. Mm-hmm. Uh, we moved in there. So, land in Cincinnati. I think at that time, my dad was searching for work. So he had just left his last job in ministry. And I think he was kind of done with it by then. Mm-hmm. He's kind of done with ministry. And not like the faith, but just. <laughs> Yikes. Working in ministry had kind of taken a toll. And, sure. And um, he, was, he was done with that. And my mom was a nurse. And so she picked up a job, I think, pretty quickly when we moved in to my grandparents' house. I just remember living in an unfinished basement and, um, back then food, you know, we ate with my grandparents. And so I think if, if I think back, I think my, my grandmother would cook some, some dinners my, and, and then my mom would do some cooking and my dad actually did some cooking as well, but then my grandpa would make breakfast mm. and it wasn't every day. But a lot of mornings, Grandpa would make breakfast. He would go down to a meat market that I think he used to work at, like, I don't know, 60 years ago, called Stalins. And he would pick up sausage and bacon and, you know, all kinds of different fun things to, to make for breakfast. And he would make a ton of pancakes, way too many pancakes. And he always had just all these different syrups. I'm sure none of them were super legit, but they were always, you know, like like peach syrup and blueberry syrup and, you know, re- you know, regular syrup. Used to love the breakfast he would make. That was so fun. Really, really enjoyed really enjoyed those times. He'd always wake us up super early too. I just remember as a kid being really annoyed by waking up early, but then it was kind of like okay because you knew breakfast was ready to rock and roll. So that that was that was good times. The the I remember when I was at one of my first food experiences. Actually, it's just coming to me as I'm remembering these times when I was growing up. I was watching. It must have been like a PBS Kids. I guess it wasn't PBS Kids back then, but like PBS show or something, mm-hmm. where on the show they taught you how to make uh, soft pretzels. And I just remember it was either my mom or my grandma, one of them. I was like, I want to make these pretzels, and we made the dough. I you know tried my hand at. I'm sure we we just used yeast. And, um, like dried yeast and, and flour, you know, whatever, you know, all the, all the others. And then I just tried my hand at like twisting them into different kind of knots and such. I remember it was much easier just to do the, the, like pretzel sticks, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's just straight mm-hmm. and made a bunch of pretzels. And I just remember them being really good. I remember being very surprised that I was able to make, make those soft pretzels from, from, uh, from scratch back then. And that was I think that was probably one of the first times i got I got kind of really into cooking, and I was always kind of interested i was I was always kind of in the kitchen with my my mom and and with my grandma with my dad. I never really did a ton with with the breakfast I, I I remember I would sit there and watch Grandpa cook and I was always fascinated by the way like the process of it all kind of interested me. He used to use a cast iron skillet um, and that's how he would cook his pancakes.
0: That's what we do today.
1: yeah and he would use a cast iron skillet he would he would um they didn't have much uh cabinet space so he'd always store them in the oven mm. Which is what my parents do today which it's
0: a pet peeve of mine honestly it,
1: it's kind of annoying to to open the oven after you've preheated and there's just a ripping hot pan in there now yeah. anyways i get it if you don't have storage the oven's great but he would cook them in the cast iron pan and after he was done he would always like wipe it out with a paper towel and then just like put it away yeah and that used to always fascinate me too. And he, was, he would always like talk to me about taking care of cast iron and how it lasts forever and the best pans in the world. And he was always so excited about it. And back then, right, I would always see like shiny pans or, you know, nice expensive nonstick pans and think to myself like, oh, these are the nice pans, right? Mm-hmm. The ones that were marketed better. I always recall them being the pans that I was more excited about or excited to use if I cooked. And so, yeah, grew up, grew up that way. Um, and I could just keep talking. Or I can I can I can hand it over to you. What's what's?
0: Well, your grandpa, um, he wasn't a farmer, right? He worked P and G um, in some capacity, and he but he he would wake up early. He did end up growing quite a bit of food.
1: So my grandpa's dad was a farmer. Okay. And so when my when when grandpa house my grandpa Niehaus was growing up. He would lived, I believe, on a farm. He was working his butt off. And then working the farm growing up, he eventually did get a job, um, a blue-collar job Mm -hmm. at Procter & Gamble Mm -hmm. and worked there for, geez, like 30 years or Mm -hmm. something and um, retired at Mm P&G. And then from P&G, once he was retired, he then bought a piece of property, which is the property that you know today, and that's in that, in this time period is when we started, uh, the corn stand.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So I just, I wanted to connect that dot for myself personally. Cause I never really understood. Like he always gave off the strong farmer vibes. Like, oh, yeah. He's got the suspenders. He wakes up <laughs> early. He's, he knows how to grow things. Yeah. And so you had a taste of that. So when you, I think you're like what, seven or eight years old at this point when you're living there. Maybe older? No, I
1: was younger. So I was probably, let's see here. Man, I was probably the ages of, yeah, between, f- I was probably five, six, seven, okay. so that, that age range, when we kind of were starting the corn stand and, and kind of getting these things going.
0: So the corn stand, <clears throat> I remember when we first started dating, Actually, no, no, no. Before that, we were just friends in high school, and uh, you were like, "Hey, I have this like produce market that my family helps run, and some of my friends help us too." And you literally had shifts that you were on. I would like come visit you. It was Mm -hmm. the weirdest thing. It was just like this wooden structure. It had a roof. It had um, kind of like aisles to it, a Mm -hmm. few rows of um, almost like tables or whatever. And you had all this beautiful produce on there. People would just come up. It was literally in the corner. Of the street, so like pretty busy street, kind of an intersection off a side road and a main road. And you guys called it the corn stand, but you sold way more than corn. Yeah, and you're like, yeah, I grew up here. We should throw up a picture. Actually, I have an old picture of you um, with your dad, I believe, selling something in Being some hilarious. capacity.
1: Started out, so my dad didn't have a job at the time, right? So my mom's working, and my dad can't not do stuff. Yeah. And so what he did was, is he drove out to a local farm and bought a bunch of sweet corn, brought it back. We all like made a sign. I must've been four years old, five years old. I mean, if you see the picture, I'm so young in the picture. And he had me and my older brother, Luke, stand outside with him in the driveway of my grandparents' house, the white picket fence, the whole, I mean, the whole situation, right? Gravel driveway with a board on top of the wheelbarrow and we'd stack corn on it and we had a, a white sign that we painted with black paint that said sweet corn something dollars a dozen I can't I mean it must have been like four dollars a dozen back then three dollars a dozen something like that and people would just pull into the driveway buy the corn and I was there to I don't know help them I think I was like helping them put in the bag back then <laughs> And we'd sell the corn to Just people. a cute
0: face to attract like little grannies on their way. And we started selling a lot of corn.
1: <laughs> and all of a sudden, as we're selling a lot of corn, some, I think, like produce stand competitor in the area saw that we were selling a bunch of corn on the side of the road. And um, they like called something and someone showed up and said, we don't have a proper license. And they shut us down.
0: Mm. Sad.
1: And my dad got kind of frustrated. And and there's a piece of property that was nearby that my grandpa also owned up the hill off Bram, that other spot that was zoned for commercial, I believe. And we were, or whatever we needed it. We we had, like, we could, we were allowed to sell it there rather than from my grandpa's driveway. There's There was a reason. I can't Mm -hmm. remember exactly. I don't know if it was zoned commercial or not. Maybe it was just because it wasn't on our personal property. Or maybe it was. I don't know. I was like, Six, five years old, I don't know, and so we moved the operation there. That's the that's what you're the, the, what you're describing the wood structure and my my grandpa's house ended up kind of taking over a lot of that. Even though my dad kind of was the initial and 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 kind of getting it going and did a lot of work at, uh, at the beginning, but then eventually my dad ended up getting a job and and had real things to do and. And uh, not real things, as this wasn't real, but just he had now another job that was more full time, taking his his time up. And my grandpa was retired, and so he took a lot more time of that, and and uh, ultimately ran it, and it became my grandpa's corn stand for, for sure. many years. Oh yeah, oh yeah,
0: ten fifteen years. So you kind of were already familiar with you know the produce side of things, but when you guys were in New York initially, it was because your father grew up there, and he has a really rich history of you know, being close to his food via hunting and fishing and farming, farming. Yeah. And so walk me through, I know we did a whole episode on hunting, but that is a piece of your growing up. And I think that's a unique part of your story. You're, you were a lot closer to the food that you were eating, but you were still eating like really conventional food. So it was like a mixed bag.
1: So, um, in summary, because right there's like two world. You're right. There's two kind of two worlds clashing here. And they're both kind of getting me closer to food. On my on my mom's side, my mom and my grandpa's house, her dad, were very so, so the farming. So the so the corn stand right. They were very involved in growing the vegetables. So me and my mom and my brothers and my grandpa, would go out and, and my dad initially, and we would plant a couple acres of produce, which for all of these out there that don't know for like four people with no machinery, a couple acres of, of produce is a lot. And it was a lot of work. Mm -hmm. I I was homeschooled and this was in the summertime, but you know, this was like, like a, like a full-time operation. Mm -hmm. That's not true. It was, it was hours and hours and hours every day of, of getting up, going over to the fields and pruning tomatoes and staking up tomato plants and And watching the weather and a storms blowing through, what are we going to do about the garden and putting up, you know, little like water walls around our tomatoes before a winter storm might roll in or frost that that was unexpected late in the season. And that kind of stuff was things that we worried about. And I remember that for years worrying about the weather and I would have to ride my bike down to my grandparents' house because we bought our own house, right? We bought one down the street. I'd ride my bike down to my grandparents' house and help tend to the garden, weeding, uh, rototilling, all, you know, all that stuff. So, But then on my dad's side, right? My dad has an interesting upbringing that, that impacts me because his dad, at the age of, I think, twenty, early mid-20s, uh, when my dad was five, my, my, my grandpa Hazemeyer broke his neck and we became a quadriplegic and was in a wheelchair. And needed a lot of assistance. And so when that happened, my great grandparents, Ray and Ruth Hazelmeyer, moved in with my with my grandpa Hazelmeyer. And they built off that they built on that addition um, to the house that you and I used to stay in, if you remember, with the bathroom and the whole situation. Mm-hmm. And that they built that addition onto my grandpa's house and they and they lived with, with, with grandpa. And they inevitably became, because they were more capable, my dad's parents, right? More or less. Whereas obviously
0: their care, his caretakers. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and because um, my grandpa was divorced and, and it was now in a, in a wheelchair and, um, and yeah, so growing up with parents or caretakers that had lived through the depression and were both business people and really, you know, got it through people. My great grandparents had a tremendous impact on the personality my dad has today. hmm and so some of the stuff that my great grandparents would do, because they retired. My great my great grandpa Ray he retired at fifty. Wow. Um, had invested a lot of money and and you know, had a lot of property and done a lot of things that had you know kind of shored him up you know early. So when he was taking care of my dad, he had a lot of time to to take my dad out in the woods, and really spend time with my dad. They did everything from planting popcorn. Hmm. To vegetables and gardens, to you know, a lot of hunting. Yeah, a lot, of, a lot of hunting. So that they, in upstate New York, Baldwinsville is where they is where they lived, had a little over a hundred acres, like a hundred and six or something like that, that they that they owned. It was adjacent to a lot of other properties, so it really felt even much bigger than that. Mm-hmm. And so they did a lot of deer hunting, squirrel hunting, you know, bird hunting. And then my great grandpa Ray would do you know moose hunting in the in the um, in Alaska or Canada, like those kinds of places, and then they had a cottage on Lake Ontario that was about two and a half hours from my grandparents' house, where they would go spend a lot of the summers, and they would fish, do a lot of fishing there. Mm-hmm. And so my dad was learning how to, you know, fillet fish, and and they did, you know, clam bakes, and there's a lot of seafood in, in, involvement in that. In that, uh, in that as well. So, so here, so here, here I have a dad that kind of grew up with this. You know, depression-minded, you know, parental figures, and then my mom's side that was very, you know, uh, farm boy, you know, growing up raising your vegetables, and so in those days when we're when we're living with my grandparents, and then when we we got kind of got my first house, we're like six, seven, eight years old, I recall every summer we ate so much produce, so mm-hmm. much fresh food that we got out of our garden. Uh, my mom made a lot of very, like long-term tradition kind of cooked meals. We, we had a lot of that with my Hazelmeyer side of the family. And we also had some from the Niehaus side of the family that were just kind of, these are meals that we make. Uh, I remember a lot of German food that we ate. So um, sauerbraten, sauerkraut, We you know, a lot of um, goulash we ate, stroganoff. I mean, these are all meals that were kind of in the rotation, right? Mm-hmm. And then for my mom said, there was a lot of, you know, my mom would make homemade lasagna. And, uh, you know, she would boil the noodles to, you know, cook off the meat. And then we would make the sauce from the tomatoes from our garden. Again, back then, you know, we were gardening with, you know, whatever would make the plants grow. I mean, we we weren't thinking about, you know, what are we doing to the soil? And it was, hey, you can fertilize the soil to make plants grow so we can have more food to put on the table. And that concept is hard to shake. Mm-hmm. Because that makes sense, especially when you're out there working every day, if someone comes out and says, "You know you're really you know using those pesticides and those weed killers you're you're hurting it for everybody else in the future. Those people are looking around going, "Man, what are you doing? I'm out here every day getting you know sunburned working my butt off, getting bit by bugs I'm itchy from walking through the corn corn rows, picking corn if you've ever picked corn, oh my gosh you're it's you're sweating you're dragging this big bag of corn. Picking the ears off, and you're just itchy from walking through the leaves. You gotta try to wear long sleeves and pants, and even like I used to wear wear like a buff around my neck if I could, just because you get so itchy. It's brutal, and so it's ideal to pick early in the morning when it's not as hot out. But picking corn's tough. But anyways, we just weren't doing any of that, right? We were tilling, we were miracle growing, and we were roundupping. I'm mm-hmm. sure. Mm-hmm. And um, actually, I don't recall using Roundup ever. But we definitely used, you know, sprays and things we, on the on the plants to kind of prevent them from getting bugs and things. There was a cucumber beetle that was just ransacking our plants one season <laughs> and we got kind of scarred from that. So um, corn stand, you know, hunting and fishing. Early on, you know, when I was six, seven, I didn't, I didn't go hunting. I was pretty young. So I didn't go out at, that, at this time. I knew of it. I was aware of it. But um, it wasn't really on my radar. I mean, I I knew about it. I did do fishing though. So at this point in time, whenever we would go up to camp in Lake Ontario, that cottage I was telling you about, that's where I I learned how to fish. And then my dad would have us help clean the fish because we would would do a fish fry Mm -hmm. after we'd caught enough perch and bass. And um, I had the job of removing the rib bones from the fillets. I I didn't get to start filleting the fish until i was much older just because it was a much more challenging task than than um i didn't my dad didn't want to cut cut myself so
0: your dad actually took probably seven years ago took me fishing and showed me how to scale a fish how to fillet the fish. yeah like a bluegill
1: or something we would scale and we would pull the fins off and you got it out
0: but it was just me and your dad yeah he was teaching me that and i think um that's just In his personality, he loves teaching people how to do things. Mm -hmm. And you kind of grew up with a mom who loves plants and gardening and and really knows her way around that. And Mm -hmm. a dad who knows his way around meat and and, uh, hunting and and the skill of that. And so totally makes sense why you ended up pursuing culinary arts. Because you were in and around food all the time.
1: Yeah. And my brothers were. I think there was something about... There's always been something that's interesting to me about some skill that I can learn and get good at. Mm -hmm. And filleting fish, I used to watch my dad fillet those fish with that electric knife. And I'd be like, man, I want to do that. Mm -hmm. And I knew that if I put the time in and I learned and I, and I was there and I was at the table that I would, that I would, uh, that I would eventually graduate up to be able to use the electric knife and do the fish filleting. And I remember back in those days, that my brothers, they were so against having to do that kind of work. They didn't want to put the time in. They were always the ones that had like dump the fish guts, right? Mm-hmm. Or, or you know, Kyle, get over. You know, my dad was always yelling at them, get over here and help me with the blah, blah, blah. And, I, and I'd always be at the table. And then the, and then what would end up happening is, is that people would complain that, well, Joey gets the easier job. And it was because I was just doing the the, the rib bones, which, you know, I would rather do the rib bones than you know, dump the buckets or the whatever. But I think it was because I was, I cared. I wanted to do those things. I was tracking, I was, I was practicing and I was getting better at it. So and I liked using a knife. I got to use a knife, right? Because you know, a little pocket knife is what I got to use to, to take out those rib bones. And my dad has that pocket knife actually at his house today. Mm. That was, you know, that one, that big, long folding one. Mm-hmm. And um, I, remember, I remember using that for, for years. I used that one. So anyways, yeah, that was at camp that was fishing, you know, the corn stand. And then, um, Um, Yeah. Growing up early school for me, I was homeschooled. We moved around so much that it was, and and when we were my grandparents' basement, I remember that's when we made the decision that I would go to homeschool. I did go to a public kindergarten in Noblesville, Indiana. I remember I got in trouble for uh, being wrongfully accused of giving somebody the middle finger. Oh, as Um, a kindergartner? Exactly. It's ridiculous you Yikes. think about it. what, what You're probably it,
0: just scratching your face or something. No, no.
1: Here's the story. We used to play this game where we would open up a book and one kid would think of a picture. And we as the kids like, sitting around the picture in the book had to use our finger to point at what picture we thought this person was thinking of. And whoever got it won and then they got to think of a picture and then wow. it was a game we played. So, and sure. like I pointed at something with my with my finger, but it happened to be my middle finger. And so, some way or another, the kid went over and told the teacher on me and said he pointed out with his middle finger. And I think she thought that I like flipped him off. <laughs> and I'm sitting there thinking the justice inside me. I was like, I did not do anything wrong. And they tried to force me to apologize to this kid. That was all I had to do is just say sorry. And, um, and I said. I didn't do anything, and I I remember just standing there like Ruthie today. You know how when she won't yes, say sorry, Yes. that's how I was. Without I was like making sense now. So I did not say sorry because I was like I did not do anything wrong. I was just playing the game, and then they they said Joey, you're not gonna be able to participate in the volcano experiment day if you don't say sorry. We'll make oh you. We'll make you sit out and watch.
0: Ew. And
1: so I didn't say sorry, and they made me sit <gasps> out and watch the volcano experiment day in kindergarten. And they made me sit there and watch the whole thing. My mom and dad were so like upset. They didn't understand what was going on. I was like really bothered. I was the only kid. I was just standing out there watching them. And you know what? Honestly, if you're that teacher today, I'm bothered by you. Yeah, because that's a bad call. You, you blew you blew it. But anyways, great teachers out there in the world for sure. But Not uh,
0: Joey's kindergarten teacher.
1: I, 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 as an adult today that can articulate thoughts, um, I had a squealy baby kid that was sad at me for pointing around a picture with a middle finger that went and tattletailed on me for nothing, and then messed up my kindergarten year. So thanks a lot. <laughs>
0: Not that he's bitter
1: about it or anything. <laughs> Anyways, um, homeschooled. And uh, that was when we were in Cincinnati, kind of moved into my grandparents' house and had no real kind of roots in an area. And we, we, we started homeschooling. And my mom and dad, we, had, we didn't know what we were doing. I mean, I, my mom might say that she might have, you know, had some ideas. But back then, it wasn't, you know, Google up, you know what to do for home Yeah, school. there was like, no YouTube. There was no YouTube curriculum tutorials. reviews. Yeah. It was just a. It was a go to the bookstore, and my mom would browse the sections to to find, um, to find curriculum for mm-hmm. us, and we'd buy it off the shelves and these big books. And I just remember as a kid being all excited. I get my books, and then like three weeks I'd hate it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And uh, it's so funny to see my kids today get all excited about their curriculum showing up and, then and they're, they're flipping like, through the pages, all excited. And then we kind of get into it and, and now we're miserable. So, um, but, uh, yeah, I was homeschooled and while I was homeschooled, my dad in that, in that you know, cause initially we started the things, he didn't have a job, but what he ended up getting into was he started a leadership consultancy business with no, you know,
0: experience prior
1: or like. Yeah, no 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 proven track record, no. He just kind of got into leadership consulting mm-hmm. and coaching business owners. And um it kind of worked out and and he ended up buying into a company and and he would take me. I'm trying to think. So my little brother was a lot was younger and then my older brother quickly ended up going to public school. He wanted to have the social life of public school. He chose that. So he decided to go to public school. Cuz th- this is why I ended up becoming the one I was the oldest that was at home. And so my dad would take me to work. Mm. It wasn't like a favoritism thing. It was just like Luke's at school. Mm -hmm. My older brother was at school. I was a homeschooler. I had the free time. So um, I'd say it wasn't every week. Definitely not every week. Not even every month. I'd say at least 10 to 15 times growing up in school, there was a Friday morning where my dad would load me up in the car and take me to work. And I would just sit in on meetings, talk to his staff, um, I just soak it all up. I didn't know what the heck was going on. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was, I mean, 10 years old, probably sitting in on you know, s- staff meetings at a research innovation consultancy and, you know, whatever. So he would have me interview business consultants, take me to networking events and have me meet, you know, five people and, um, a, a guy he was friends with had recently wrote a book. And so he had me read the book and then have a meeting with him and talk about the book with him. So that was stuff that I just had to do. That's
0: a lot to ask for a 10, 11, 12-year-old to do.
1: I do remember it being extremely nerve-wracking.
0: Yeah, but I think it paid off well because you built some really solid skills early on. Not totally. that you even probably needed them at that point, but those things keep
1: developing. Fast-forwarding here because I know that we're... I'm, I'm just talking a ton, so I apologize. But I, um, my mom got sick, so she ended up coming down with Lyme's disease. Um, and we didn't know what it was at first. So for like the first, like eight years of her dealing with this, nine years, maybe we had no idea what was going on. My Mm -hmm. mom was just completely incapacitated and immobilized. And as a homeschool family, that was tough because, you know, she was, her energy and her focus and her ability was the reason why we we could do homeschooling. And I remember at least two years of homeschooling where my mom used to call them, um, Oh my gosh. What did she call them? I have to ask my brothers. What, the, what did she call this? Some Something parent holiday or something and vacation holiday, something. She gave it a name and it basically meant like, yeah, we're not doing anything today.
0: Mom's too sick.
1: And we didn't, she didn't say that, right? She never like expressed like, I don't feel good. I'm just too weak. I can't. But she would just like be on the couch and we would just go downstairs and play, you know, video games or run outside and and hang out, and and, um, as my mom kind of watched us losing years of schooling, she ended up uh, putting me in sixth grade, when I was in sixth grade, into a private school to to ensure that I was getting classes in. And so homeschooled up until sixth grade, I went to a private school, and uh, man, the, the idea of homework was just ridiculous to me. So I just didn't do it, right? I would learn a concept in class, and then they would give me a sheet of like 50 problems of the same concept. I would do three and be like, yeah, I got it. I would take them in. They would all be right. And the teacher would be like, you didn't finish your homework. You have detention. And I would say, this is ridiculous. I got all these right. I know how to do this concept. And so, the, so that was the first point in my life where I recognized this school system doesn't make any sense. <laughs> For you. like The purpose of school is to help me learn concepts. Why on earth am I just going to gut through all these extra and what I will say, even if I could talk to back then, Joey, there's a lot of things that you can learn from having to push through and do something, right? The, the kind of the grit of that, the determination, the discipline, but that's not how it was communicated. Mm-hmm. And and when you can't express the reason why or getting people on board as to the purpose of something, it's meaningless. Yeah, that's so true. And so there's so much meaningless school that doesn't have to be meaningless, but there is so much meaningless school that's going on so much. It's just unbelievable. We're just wasting time, mm-hmm. wasting time. I have very strong freaking opinions about the school system because you can, you can take schooling and make it have a purpose. Hey, I want you to become the best version of you. Hey teacher, this is too hard. And I already know this concept. You're not learning the concept right now. You're learning how to work hard, be disciplined, be disciplined, and to meet deadlines. Oh, okay. You know how many teachers told me that? Zero. Mm-hmm. Zero teachers ever told me that. You know what they would tell me instead? You have to do this or you get detention. And it was just like, this is insanity. This doesn't make any sense. And my you know, sixth grade brain can't connect those dots. So as adults, we just got to do better. So anyways, homeschooling for sure is, is, is has been a much better way to coach our children because we truly think about our child's future, right? And and um, a lot of times in schooling, they're, they're, they, they have a method that uh, maybe doesn't hit the right key for all kids. Um, sorry, this is getting spicy, schooling, sorry. Anyways, um, struggled through school. I started having a really hard time and my mom started sending my mom and dad started sending me to um, these like learning centers and taking me to the doctor to see if I had ADHD. This was back in the day when everyone had ADHD. well, at least I did, and a lot of kids around me did. And these learning centers were supposed to they had like I don't even know what if you think about it, it was just like on a computer with like a song and dance to help me learn something. I really don't understand that concept, but those things got big. Remember, like the Sylvan Learning Centers mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and like the ABC or whatever they were, those kinds of things, that got really big for a time. Are those still a thing? Or are those done?
0: You know, I don't know. I don't. I don't. I know a lot of those ADHD diagnoses through parents a curveball they didn't know how to handle, and so mm-hmm. they were like, "Oh, we got to get a tutor. We need to figure mm-hmm. this out." I think that they're still around and 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 beneficial for many families. I just don't know. I don't know. I'm just not in that world right now. Yeah, I, yeah, really I mean, me either.
1: I, I assume they're still around, but. I haven't heard heard from them or about them in a, in a long time. But back then, it they felt like a it big was, deal, I felt like.
0: I think because it was new. I think yeah. because you were probably some of the early generation of that ADHD diagnosis. These like hyperactive boys in particular. You have learning challenges. You're not focusing on school. Yeah. You were medicated. You were all the things. And that was like your parents didn't experience that in their generation. I we remember
1: kind of the back then there being an immense amount of shame for me hmm. when I would go to that place. Wow. I, like, if I, if people, if friends of mine or you know, family or others found out that I was going to the learning center, mm-hmm. it, it made me feel so weak. Mm. I was like, it was like the first moment where I, where, I, where I used to think to myself, like, man, maybe I'm just not smart. Mm. I mean, going to a learning center made me feel it just zapped my confidence as a person. And I think it honestly, even potentially put me in a situation where going forward, I was less confident in my own current, like my own ability to figure stuff out. And so I, I really struggled through sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth grade. Um, walking into 10th grade, I started a little bit better. But into, into um, 11th grade, because um, after sixth grade, I went back to homeschooling, but I did some kind of hybrid situations. But walking into 11th grade, uh, we found this career center near my uh, near my house or near, well, not actually near my house, but out here in Cincinnati called uh, Butler Tech. And it's a, it's a career center. So for 11th and 12th grade students, half day you're in lab. So learning a trade. And then the other half of the day, you're in your academics. And so you still graduate high school, mm-hmm. the same as any other kid. But half of your day, each day, is spent learning a trade and you're learning from like experts, it's like legit trade school. And I, um, I had, I had uh, been at this point watching all the cooking shows and um, you know, hunting was in full swing at this point when I turned 16, I got to start deer hunting. It was a huge deal. I mean, I started hunting if you zoom back even a little bit, I started hunting. I got my first gun when I was 12. So I was given my first uh, shotgun. It was a 20 gauge. I still have it. And so I'm processing squirrels and I'm butchering deer and I'm watching all the cooking shows. Back then it was, you know, Emeril Lagasse, uh, Bobby Flay started hitting the scene. Rachel
0: Ray was in there, but she was, you know.
1: I wasn't watching Rachel Ray. I know
0: I was. It was great.
1: Uh, Let's see. Who else was I watching? Iron Chef America started to pop off. Right. So watching Morimoto and Bobby Flay and Michael Simon and Mario Batali, those kinds of folks. And so. I was, uh, you know, get after that. So, anyways, that was kind of that's kind of my school days. That was kind of my, you know, learning centered days. And from there, I kind of went on and and I had some jobs. I, I got into working in some restaurants, worked at everywhere from IHOP to you know nice restaurants like David's up in Mount Adams. And so, uh, got 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 the full gambit of restaurant industry lifestyle, working in kitchens, fast paced food. All the way to like, you know, IHOP kitchens where you know maybe I was working with some convicts and you know whatever else. So, but you loved your times. IHOP experience. I, I loved all those experiences.
0: And at one point you had because I remember you were texting me. We were friends. You were in New York visiting the CIA, mm. um, Culinary Institute of America. Not like the Secret Service or <laughs> the CIA. I mean, <laughs> it's the number one school. For culinary arts in the US, it's, right? It's
1: a funny thing to joke about because it's, you know, we, you know, the CIA Culinary Institute of America is not the same as, you know,
0: it's s- not, but you have to, it's it's a really rigorous thing to get in there. You have to have like a letter of recommendation by someone who's gone to the former school. Student, yeah. You had that, one of your former chefs went to that school. You were like ready to get in. You were touring to see if you wanted to go there.
1: I was there, yeah. I toured there and then I toured another culinary school called Johnson and Wales. Yeah,
0: which I've heard of that. Yeah, Yeah. I remember they came to my high school to like pitch to us, yeah, Yeah. to say like these are all the awesome opportunities and I remember it sounding really fascinating. But at one point you kind of made a decision to steer away from the traditional chef lifestyle because you're like, listen, I'm going to, if I have a family someday, like I'm going to be working on holidays, I'm going to long hours. Anyone in the food industry knows it can be a grind. It's a passion industry. You have to have passion for it. And you were like... I think, I think you maybe were watching your dad in
1: Mm -hmm.
0: business and maybe that looked appealing, but
1: I think I got to a point where I was working a number of jobs, a number of restaurants and going to culinary school because I did, before I decided not to go to the CIA, I had not decided that I didn't want to cook. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Right. Mm -hmm. But I did identify that I felt like there was more opportunity for me to be successful in some capacity if I stayed home and I didn't feel the advantage of a prestigious culinary school was going to give you that much more of an advantage in what I wanted to accomplish. Mm. And that was kind of how I initially decided to stay back. So I, st- I, I stayed in Cincy, went to the Midwest Culinary Institute, which I don't know how it is today, but even back then it was kind of still a pretty great culinary program. Mm-hmm. And from there I was, I was in culinary school and I was working three jobs, living on my own. I don't even, I don't even remember really, I hardly ever even went to my own apartment. I was just out cooking all the time and um, I'd get back. The culinary program I did, the Midwest Culinary Institute was a two-year program. And I just remember at that point being like, this is not how I want to live the rest of my life. I don't want to do this. Mm-hmm. There was a number of days where the restaurant jobs that I had, that I had to, I remember a couple of years where I had to work Christmas, Mother's Day, Thanksgiving, like just all the holidays. It was like, I got to work. Actually never Thanksgiving, but I worked Christmas, mm-hmm. New Year's. Mm-hmm. Uh, and geez, that, I didn't want that. And actually at first I just wanted to play soccer. Cause then I was very confused. Cause food started becoming a thing where, I just was losing the motivation to structure my entire life around this thing. And so soccer really saved me and kept me in college. I I used to get a bunch of friends together at the soccer city down the street from my parents' house just to practice and train. I trained up every day. I, I, I practiced soccer every single day so I could play in college. And Eventually got a scholarship to Cincinnati Christian University to to play soccer. And when I was walking into that college, as I wanted to be as an athlete, that was that I just signed signed on. They told me we just started a business program too. It's great. I was like, cool. Guess I'll just get a business degree. So after kind of getting a degree in culinary arts, I then transferred to Cincinnati Christian University to play soccer and get a business management degree. So that's what I did. Got a business management degree and walked out of there. And I recall picking up my first job in business at that time, where I work now, actually. And um, people ask me all the time, well, don't you miss like working in kitchens and cooking and that kind of life? So I'm like, actually, sometimes I, sometimes I do. Sometimes I do. Sometimes I do miss the high intensity of a kitchen and, and working together and the, the the way you're able to push yourself to get so much food done. It's almost like the way I could have back in the day and probably still today, I'd love to try it, but maximize some of those grills and stovetops. I just felt like, man, I can cook more food on here than you can, but it's the same stove. And that just sounds weird, but it was just all about timing and speed and gut reaction almost
0: well if you've watched any like chefy show right like we just started um the bear and that scenes from that even i just watched the first episode scenes from that show (sighs) are flashing through my head right or like um chef the movie Mm -hmm. where you see like what it looks like to work in kind of a Mm -hmm. high-end restaurant and the vibe and when the main character has to step out the other the sous chef now becomes the main Mm -hmm. guy and that like yeah really high intensity fast pace it's a culture thing like anyone in the restaurant service industry knows what that kind of culture looks like and feels like but you still do experience some of that in your in your current line of work it's
1: like a whole different world in the restaurant industry Mm, mm -hmm. i love it
0: that's probably why people that are in that industry stay within that industry because it's it's like addicting it's it's unique it's It's honestly, it's beautiful. I love it. And uh, as the consumer going out to eat is one of my favorite things.
1: So anyways, I I tell people now I love to cook. I love to cook, but I don't want to cook to live. Mm -hmm. It's there's, it's just two very different things. And I still do cook cook quite a bit. And uh, now nowadays uh, I own a company called the living room. It's a creative meeting space company. We do consumer research and recently, we acquired a co working company as well. And essentially, what we are is a destination for corporations, organizations, foundations, those sorts of things. Big and small companies, everything from the Fortune 100 all the way to small, six, seven person companies that want to get off site to another location to have an amazing off site meeting. And so, we have a small staff and we do a lot of in-house food and right now as i'm in the process of trying to hire somebody for the food i am taking a lot of the brunt of cooking said food mm-hmm. and um some days i dread it because there's so much other work that i need to get done and thus i feel like it's inhibiting me but on other days on other occasions where you know maybe i'm caught up and i've got some food to do as well you know, sometimes i like just getting my hand on the knife and and Know, getting after it in the kitchen i like it
0: so i'm curious because anyone listening to this can see a through line of food's always been big in your life it's been big in your family culture big in your family tradition big in your connection with your food and you uh, are a trained chef so like I'm the luckiest wife in the world. And honestly, I tell anyone raising sons, I'm like, please make sure you teach your boys how to cook because one of the most attractive things about Joey is the fact that you're you're able to outcook me in any kitchen and also just like, it's so fun. It's so like, I remember one of our earliest Valentine's dates, we just made a bunch of homemade pasta and ravioli and just had this like incredible meal.
1: Something is a common misconception with men and cooking is that somehow women are supposed to be the cooks mm-hmm. and men aren't. Mm-hmm. And those are the people that say that are men that don't know how to cook. Mm-hmm. Oh, totally. Because at least when I went through culinary school, the professional chef industry is so male dominated.
2: Yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah, it is. At least
1: it was. It's it, been a it while still for is. me. Yeah. We're talking like, I remember statistics of like over 80% mm-hmm. were men in kitchens.
0: Were the women typically in pastry? To generalize. I
1: never worked in a kitchen with a woman.
0: Really? In your, in your early like restaurant? We had,
1: we had two at IHOP and there were these Hispanic ladies that would come in to do food prep on third shift. But they never actually worked. Oh,
0: because you were open 24 hours a day. Yeah.
1: They never came and worked the grills. At David's, we had no female cooks, chefs. We had no female chefs. And then at... Why do you think that is? At um, Gordo's, no no female chefs. Um, the. The work of being a chef... And the cooking and the it, it is so unbelievably time consuming. I can't imagine giving birth during that time period, having a baby, being pregnant back there, any of that. I imagine that's a minor deterrent. Also, quite frankly, I don't know. Um, I have cooked with women that could destroy me. Mm-hmm. In both mechanics and understanding. Oh
0: yeah, you're not saying women can't cook. I just think it's interesting and an but interesting. But there observation. is it is a reality. Mm-hmm.
1: It'll be f- it'll be fascinating as we talk to more chefs in the future. To get more chefs on here to ask them what it's like nowadays. Mm-hmm. It, back when I went through culinary school and I was working in restaurants, there was little to no women that's wild that were that were in the back of the house. A T- ton in the front of the house. Mm-hmm. Women are in restaurants. Mm -hmm. There's no no doubt about it. A lot of my managers and crew chiefs were women, right? It's like sometimes my boss was a woman, Mm -hmm. but not like on the hot food line with me getting after it. Hmm. Uh, So anyways, restaurant jobs. And then, you know, work at the living room. We do food there as well. We cater for all of the executives and folks that we host. And then, um, then we got married Got married, kind of actually before really got really involved in the living room, but you know who's counting. And um, man, food for me, right? As we're kind of transitioning into and into, into kind of like that real food, so, sort of like the pivotal moments for me converting somewhat, if you will.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It's it's weird for me because I wasn't the driver for this. And that you were. And I and I more or less was following your lead in a lot of things and trusting the stuff that you were telling me was was good to go. But ultimately I did have to eventually figure it out for myself. Like why why am I gonna invest my energy and time into this, right? But as I think back to the early days of our our conversion if you will.
0: The beginning of our journey, yeah.
1: I remember the first time for me, for me, that I recognized that maybe there's other ways to do this that people have been doing for a while and before was a conversation that you had with my Aunt Debbie about raw goat milk. Mm Mm-hmm. And the reason that you were having this conversation with her, I wasn't even in the conversation. I was just off to the side. But I was hearing it, and I was seeing how you were th- considering it as like a change for our family. And I just remember thinking like, well, Aunt Debbie's family's all super good to go, squared away. And I'm like, I don't understand why this would, put, this milk would be bad for us. And I also know that Elizabeth wouldn't, risk it so whatever I'm in right that's kind of how like that process went for me that day but Ruthie had been having a lot of trouble with the formula that we had put her on around her like what f- six month four five fourth fifth sixth month something like that and it didn't take us long to recognize that like there's just something off about this stuff it is not good for her and I knew that you were doing research to try to figure it out. But it was very shortly after you talked to Aunt Debbie. And you must have done a ton of other research that maybe I just didn't even see or recognize. Doesn't matter. Because what what inevitably happened is that we began making our own our own formula and you started getting raw milk. And the like gelatin and the I don't know, fish stuff that you'd put in there or whatever it was. Cod liver oil. There you go.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Sunflower oil. Um, yeah, I was following a specific recipe designed by a nutritionist and PhD named Mary.
1: And at that point, I remember recognizing, wow, so this is different than everybody else is doing it.
0: Oh yeah, our nanny thought we were insane.
1: (laughs) And I don't know. I didn't mind it. I saw improvement in my child she became less colicky I hate that word too so annoying colicky she started she stopped being as fussy and cranky and spitting up and that enough that, that, that alone was enough for me to say there has been improvement based off of this change and so i was good to go from like a family perspective at that point But to be honest, it took me a little while to start to own it for myself. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think I've cracked some of the code. I was even thinking about it today of why I care as much as I do now. There's a lot of missional stuff that is, it gets me so hyped. Things that Homegrown's doing, the way it's impacting people's lives, the health aspect and component of it, but I'll let you in on a little little bit of a secret. I'm just it's not a secret because you know this. I'm a, I'm wildly competitive, just like ridiculous. And I noticed that my body performs better. In the sense of my brain can take in more information. I can communicate longer and be more focused when i lift in the gym i have more energy when i go for runs I've, i can recover faster and a lot of that if not most of that upside is a result of investing in my nutrition and so really going all in on nourishing food. Also, it bleeds into other parts of my life.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. It's not just, it doesn't stop there. Now now I want to read and make sure that I'm nourishing my brain with business and leadership books and inspirational stories. I want to make sure that I'm nourishing my spiritual life with you know scripture and having you know challenging conversations that influence me to want to grow in who I am. I want to be physically capable, both in nourishment but also lifting weights and going on runs. And so it really all bleeds together. And I, I feel like those habits begin to just multiply. Next thing you know, you've got this daily rhythm and routine of just taking care of yourself.
0: Did you ever read Atomic Habits?
1: Never. Should I?
0: Um, it like was really I feel like there was always a couple books that like pop off and then I read them and I'm like, mm. "Okay." Um, it was good. It but it talks about this concept of like habit stacking mm. and like if you can, which is very intuitive if you can get one habit down it's exactly what lahana was talking about actually in our previous episode with her where she says while i'm eating my breakfast i also like to do my red light therapy so while she's getting in her daily nourishment she's also putting a red light in front of her Mm -hmm. so she's getting that red light into her tissues so it's like that's habit stacking for you you can see the repercussions if you go for a long run you didn't eat a good lunch or dinner But you're also doing habit stacking a little bit because you're working out then you're eating a really good raw milk protein shake, and then maybe you're drinking like coconut water. you're just these things are all cyclical totally. I'm curious, and maybe this is controversial, but i why do you think so many because you're a a man a husband, and a father? Why are there so many men, husbands, and fathers who are just relying on the women to? make the decisions for their families nourishment-wise? Like, why is that pressure naturally falling on them? Why are they not taking a more active role? Because I talk to so many women who are in this game, they're ready, they want to make these changes, and the only feedback they get is, hey, that's a lot of money to spend on food. I don't think that that's the best decision for our family. There are financial implications. That is accurate. But it seems to me like if I'm going to generalize, most of the time the responsibility or the pressure or even just the natural thought of it like you didn't walk in and say like hey we need to make sure our family's healthy like what are we eating why is that not a first thought
1: that's a great question i don't my gut reaction would give you first i don't know <laughs> do you think it's culture i think gut reaction tells me that Men are naturally going to submit to their wives as to what the household should should be focusing on mm-hmm. now, if the conversation goes ninety five percent of the time, husband lets wife do whatever they whatever she wants to until it starts to cost more money and then you know husband says, "Gee, that's expensive stuff there." Maybe we should, you know, consider not doing that. I just, I don't, I don't understand. I don't understand. I don't know. Um, if that's, what's, if that's, what's always happening, that's hard for me to resonate with, I guess what I'm trying to say.
0: There's often also, like I get the question, how do you help your husband get on board with your decision-making, whether it be raw dairy or even if it's just like buying better meat? And I'm often like I'm often like, uh, buy or watch a documentary together. Get them involved. If they listen or read books, get them a book to listen to or read. If they listen to podcasts, send them a podcast episode that resonates with you. If they're not getting any information and all they're seeing is extra dollar signs going out the door in their grocery budget, they're going to be confused mm. because two steaks side by side look the same. They might not be. Steaks may be a bad example. Two chickens, two bags of flour side by side aren't going to taste a whole lot different potentially. But if one's more expensive or if you're taking more time in the kitchen or if if you as the wife truthfully are stressed out because you're taking on this more, this extra responsibility, your husband needs to be on board. So I think a lot of time it's just maybe to answer your, my own question, it's just a disconnect and the couple is not coming together and seeing this as a problem they need to solve together. It's more of I've made a decision or I want to make a decision. Are you also going to make that decision with me? Now you're saying food's always been big. Now you're shifting to this real food thing. You kind of had to take it and be like, okay, I, get, I want my kids to be healthy. My wife's being healthy. That's cool too. Now I need to worry about what I'm putting into my body. And for you, it's a performance thing. It's a, Mm -hmm. I want to be.
1: I want to be capable. I want to be self-reliant. I want to be able to take care of myself and my family. I don't want there to be major dependency on food processing and big corporations Government, I don't want any of that. I want to be able to, as much as I can, sustain our families, nourish our family, provide for our family without the assistance of, of others. And I say that because I just want to be ready that if there's ever a scenario where, I, like as a man, I just feel like it's natural for me to want to be protective and something that could f- potentially feel like a threat, especially after the, after the pandemic where people were raiding grocery stores and there wasn't stuff available. and I just remember you and I being like, yeah, we're good to go. You know what we didn't do? We didn't rush out to our grocery store. We didn't panic. And we just had a sense of calmness. And um, I don't know. I like that. I like that we know that we're not so reliant on provide other people to provide for us there's less fear
0: yeah I think if I were to encourage someone who might be sitting in that headspace right now like I understand you know if we had endless money sure yeah we'd buy higher quality food but we don't have that right now it's not. It's like when I'm talking to my kids about food. I don't just leave it at that first initial level. I take it up a notch, and I'm like, "Food impacts every other piece of your family." Um,
1: there's some changes people need to make with their family that are not just go by all all organic and and you know locally grown source. Honestly, there's building blocks.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, if if you're doing craft mac and cheese. TV dinners, I don't know if those are even still a thing. Microwaveable meals and, you know, air-fried chicken tenders from a frozen bag every night. The, The starting place is learn how to cook real food. Buy vegetables. Yeah. Go out, go out, go to the produce section of your store. Yeah. Great. If you can buy organic, if not, I mean, start with just cooking real food Mm -hmm. because there, there, there are ways to get in the game and then to keep excelling and growing within the game. I think the last thing I would encourage any couple to do is go from TV dinners to wanting to go buy all organic meats and vegetables. And if you can, great, but man, we got to start with we got to start with the basics.
0: So where would, where would you tell them to start?
1: It depends on where they start where where they're coming from, right? So if they're making a veggie starch protein meal currently, I would say let's start by looking at where we get our meat from.
0: What if they're just heating up things that are like you just said?
1: So there's heating up stuff that's packaged, maybe it's in cardboard on a yeah. Yeah, I'd say from there I would start by Learning how to cook and prepare protein. And
0: how are they going to learn that? Where are they going to go?
1: YouTube. YouTube. Go to YouTube. If you're listening to this, that means you have a smartphone, probably, um, or something with access to YouTube. Go to YouTube. How to cook uh, skin on chicken breast Mm -hmm. in a saute pan Mm -hmm. or in the oven. Mm -hmm. Buy, Buy a thermometer if you have to. Or just cut it open and look at it and then put it back in if it's not done. Learn how to prepare protein. Experiment with different versions. Don't just cook chicken. Don't just cook steak. Get into some chicken, get into some steak, get into some pork, get into some other versions of poultry, the you know, wild game, you know, where you're getting your meat from. And then start to look into different methods of cooking meat, right? Master one method with different proteins and go on to the next method. It's easier that way than to say I mastered one protein and then I moved on to another protein. It's easier to stick with one method and go from protein to protein.
0: Yeah, because you can you can braise chicken, you can braise beef, you can braise pork. All that looks a little different, but in general, if you know how to braise meat, you know how to braise meat.
1: Correct. Master the method and then and move around on the protein. And so I'd be like, man, let's let's start and let's start. Stovetop, or maybe honestly, maybe start in the oven. Mm-hmm. Maybe it feels just, less intimidating. Maybe starting in the oven with a set temperature, and a timer. Yep. After you've learned the oven, learn different temperatures and times in the oven. So maybe instead of just a roasted, you know, chicken breast, you're gonna braise some chicken breasts. So covered, low heat, longer time. Mm-hmm. Broiled chicken breast right high heat it's almost like reverse mm-hmm. grilling it
2: mm-hmm.
1: and then you're going to move on to you know stovetop learning how to saute and you know, maybe you've Pan got fry. a cast iron yeah mm-hmm. yeah and then from there you're going out to the grill and learning how to grill again the grill is basically the same thing as a stovetop so people just get antsy don't like, know the grill i don't know i'm like can you cook on the stove?
0: For some reason the grill is like the one place that men are like cool cooking and like they're okay to dominate that in their house but it's like you put a man in front. This is so generalizing by the way. Like I'm not saying that this is for everyone but I'm looking on TV and when I see a dude cooking anything he's excited if he's grilling it. Something about, I don't know what that is. If that feels like approachable to you, mm. go for it. Um, I just think that like I said in an earlier episode, we just recorded, it's the lack of knowledge is the piece that is the biggest hurdle for people. Totally. It's the lack of understanding. Totally. They're not doing anything wrong. These husbands who are talking to their wives who are like, hey, it doesn't make sense to 3X our budget right now. We can't do that. They're not wrong. They're oh, accurate.
1: That's what I'm saying. It
0: just might look like, I like your point. Hey, maybe take a different first step. Hey, maybe take...
1: Additionally, if you're going from prepared foods and meals to home-cooked food, you're probably going to save money.
0: Yeah. Make sure you're buying the right – make sure you're spending money on the right things, right? And people always get up in arms about um, grass-fed beef, right? They want the organic grass-fed, grass-finished beef. That's like top tier. We did a whole podcast episode on how, actually, if you're going to buy any lower quality meat, it should be from a an ruminant animal because they're at least fed on grass the majority of their life. Yeah. They're not like an omnivore that can be fed jam, corn, and soy, like a chicken or a pig. And then you're processing them after they've had virtually no nutrient quality.
1: You should literally care more about sourcing chicken and pork than you should. Beef.
0: And even at, even at even with that understanding... If, if the best thing you can buy is a whole chicken that's conventionally grown and maybe was raised in a CAFO, but you take that chicken home and you cook it for your family, applause to you. Because that's I know. way better. That's
1: what I'm saying. Way better than... Being than capable he- of doing that is the very first step yeah. for sure. Yeah. So that's what I'm saying. So depending on where you're coming from, right? So I would, I would just master some methodologies, methods, methodologies. Ma- master some methods, learn the proteins, and then from there... You know, that's when I would. That's when I would start to venture off into some different veg, starch because that's just such another realm. There's, it goes so far. But I mean, basically, if you could learn how to roast, broil, braise in the oven, and then you can learn how to, you know, saute, and cook in a fry pan. And there, you know, there, there's, you know, there's ways. There's there's some ways like render fat at low heat and finish at high heat hit it in the saute pan high heat to get a color on it, and flip it over and turn it to low heat and finish it in the oven you know, there's there's some ways to, to to really kind of go about different you know use methods with the stove but then you know learning the grill if you, if you know how to do all of that with the protein man you're good to go
0: mhm yeah protein's probably the hardest hardest for people
1: you are good to go and i feel like the other, the only other reason why i say that is all meals center around a protein you could be a vegan and your meal centers around a protein. Mm -hmm. You're trying to convince yourself that you're eating chicken and it's cauliflower. Mm -hmm. And it's, you're, you're, it's like, dude,
0: where's your protein?
1: Anyways, I, uh, I'd start with, I'd start with the protein. So cool. Some of the things that, uh, that I'm learning today, kind of wrap this thing up here. I always like to ask the guests to kind of come on here and, give us their real food journey. What are you learning today? And some of the stuff that I'm learning today is 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 interesting because there's actually some unlearning. So as much as it's a benefit that I have all the culinary training that I have, mm-hmm. there's also some habits that I have to break. In culinary school, we cooked with oils straight up all the time canola oil olive oil whatever right we're ready to go we know how to do clarified butter we understood you know animal fats rendering out duck fat chicken fat whatever we get that and we we did all that but man when you're in the kitchen you're getting after and you're cooking canola oil every single day all the time it was high heat it was cheap it was quick and food tasted great cooked out of it it was perfect that was the first you know kind of thing that I had to unlearn, and then another thing that I had to unlearn is the use of nonstick pans. Mm-hmm. oh my gosh, the amount of nonstick pans that we went through is unbelievable, and so kind of getting used to more ceramic and stainless steel, and we obviously used those in culinary school as well, but not for all the things that I'm using for using them for now,
0: yeah, like we we cooked scallops the other day and <laughs> nightmare. <laughs> you're like I was like how are we going to do this in this pan? And you're like ah we're at the bottom of like the bits were burning. Not not the actual scallop, just like some of the it's hard to even explain cuz nothing's coming off the scallop, but I was like okay, well how are they cooking scallops to order in a restaurant? Yeah. You're like well they're using a nonstick pan, they're wiping it with a paper towel in between every single service. Yep. I was like dang it. Like so there are some things where I guess we could have wiped out the pan every time.
1: You had to scrape it.
0: Yeah, it's, it's, there are, there are definite, definite, you know, things where it doesn't cross over beautifully from, you know, commercial kitchen to your own kitchen. Think,
1: I think the scallops, and I don't love cooking seafood in our cast iron, mm-hmm. but.
0: We were in a stainless steel pan it wasn't a cast iron. I know. Oh, you're saying we should have done it in the I, cast I
1: don't iron. know. I'm. I think it would have done better.
0: Because ours is so nonstick essentially.
1: The coating on ours was pretty nice. Yeah. I think it would have done better at uh at getting those cooked so off. So
0: you're you're unlearning some of the culinary tricks of the trade.
1: Unlearning some I'm also unlearning some of the things I knew I, I learned in uh you know, raising gardens. I mean I I can't even it was so hard for me to understand not using like just a tiller to till up the soil Mm -hmm. like why would we not do that how are the roots going to grow Yeah. and um, this year we didn't till our garden and it's growing pretty good so unlearning Maybe I am learning. I don't need to say it that way, but there is is some habits that are changing based off of new information that's replacing old information. Mm -hmm. However you'd want to say that. But uh, I think that just about wraps it up here.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And if you've loved this episode, if you've loved the things that you're hearing from us, we've got more for you. We've got... We've got books, we have, we've got coloring books, we've got curriculum for your kids. All kinds of awesome ways to continue and start your real food journey. You can find those curriculums, those books, those coloring books, those meal plans, shopping lists on homegrowneducation.org. We have those for sale up there. You can go get those books for yourself. And you could also find elizabeth and myself on instagram you can find elizabeth at liz hazelmeyer you can find me at joey hazelmeyer and you can find elizabeth at homegrown underscore education and until next time
2: that's a wrap